Uh, let's turn together to the New Testament book of First John, the book of First John, as we continue to read in chapter 2 and have come this evening to the short section, verses 7 through 11. First John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. And in these verses, John is giving us the third of three tests concerning our assurance that we are indeed Christians. And we read, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, that is in Christ, and you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. And with these very wonderful but very solemn words also, may God indeed bless our hearts and our understandings this evening hour. Now, in the appendix to one of Dr. Francis Schaeffer's uh, best-known books, The Church at the End of the Twentieth Century, there is a little passage cited that is of great importance. The single sentence where Dr. Francis Schaeffer says that love is the mark of a true Christian. Now, when the late Dr. Francis Schaeffer wrote that sentence, he was, of course, basing his thought very firmly upon the scriptures of God's word. And in particular, in his study of the passage in John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, where you remember the familiar words of Jesus are given to us, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, it's very clear from that passage, I think, that only with this mark may the world know that Christians are Christians indeed and that God the Father has sent his Son into the world. And this takes us directly to the passage that is before us tonight in the book of First John that we have been exploring together on these Sunday evenings. We have seen in particular, as we have come to chapter 2, that verses 3 through 11 of chapter 2 are a single unit. They stand or they fall 
as it were, together. And they have one single common theme that is of great importance to us if we profess the name of Christ at all. And their importance is this. How do I know that I am a Christian? How do I know that I know him who is my Savior and my Lord? That I am not self-deceived, that I am not one of the many who I believe are present in our society today who think they are Christians, but in reality the fruits that should accompany that profession are seriously lacking in their lives. And that problem was evidently present in John's day in a number of areas of the church's life. And one of the great purposes, as I have mentioned to you, of the book of First John is that John is giving to us the tests of Christian assurance. And in verses 3 to 11, we began to see two Sunday evenings ago that the first test was this, that knowing God implies obedience to his commands. Verses 3 through 5a. And the second of the three tests, from verse 5b into verse 6, was that union with Christ implies likeness to him. So that you see, if I claim to be a Christian, then I should be able to see in my life and others be able to see in it the fruits of active day by day and hour by hour obedience to the commands of God in his holy word. And similarly, I should be able to see and others be able to see in me a growing likeness to Christ himself. And those were the first two and very searching tests that we saw John applying to our lives two Sunday evenings ago. Now we've come tonight to the third and final test. And it is so rich that I think wisely we separated it from the others two Sunday evenings ago that we might deal with it by itself and on its own merits this evening. Now what is that third test? of Christian assurance, that third mark by which I may know whether I am in Christ. And it is simply this, that living in the light implies walking in love. Do I claim to be a Christian? Do I claim to walk in the light of God's presence and of his favor? Well, if I do, then the characteristic mark of my life as a professing Christian is that I am living in loving relationships with other members of the body of Christ. And I want to suggest to you this evening, my dear friends, that this is a very pertinent and a very powerful lesson for us to learn that the love of the brethren is not something optional that we can take up or lay down as we please, but is one of the standing marks of being a new creation in Christ Jesus, loving the brethren. Now, there are in all five verses that deal with this theme the verses we read together tonight, verses 7 through 11. I want to divide them into two parts. 
and to suggest to you that, first of all, as you look at the text, I hope, in your Bible in front of you, you'll see that in verses 7 and 8, there is a description of the law of love. And that secondly, in verses 9 through 11, there is a description of the life of love. And I want to suggest to you that in genuine Christian experience, beloved, you can never separate the two. We are going to separate them this evening for the purpose of studying what John is teaching us. But the law of love in Christian experience, must always be accompanied by the life of love in the believer if we are to fulfill the biblical mark of loving the brethren. Now let's take up then the rest of our time this evening to look just at these two great themes. And I want to emphasize as we do so that we are not dealing with theory tonight. We are dealing with living day by day and hour by hour practice. The question that burns in the scriptures before us is, do I love my brethren in Christ? Now, first of all, there is the law of love in verses 7 through 8. It's very interesting, I want to suggest to you, to see this verse in the light of the contemporary Christian world today. Look at what it says. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new commandment, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him that is in Christ and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Now you see, the contemporary Christian world around us needs this message very much indeed. I'm not very very much one for statistics, but I couldn't help noticing some time ago here in the United States of America that George Gallup was up to his antics once more, And he told us that there are 80 million people in the United States who claim to be Christians. There are 100 million who claim to go regularly to church. And in fact, he went on to say that today it seems that American society is more Christianized than ever before in its history on the basis of certain statistics. Now, you see, when I hear these things and read these things, I immediately find that inwardly I'm in a dilemma. And the dilemma is simply this. If these statistics are true, why are we living in an age that is characterized probably by more violence than ever before? Why are we living in an age with the worst crime rate of any generation before? Why are we living in a generation that is plagued by AIDS and increasing divorce to the point where one marriage in two is almost guaranteed to fail at some point of its existence? Why is this generation distinguished by its love of abortion? 
And you see, I think the answer is that in the lives of professing Christians, there is ultimately no difference between them and the people around them who have no interest in Christ whatsoever. We can begin to see something of this even in the Christian church where the rate of marriage breakup is growing alarmingly and even among the clergymen. And we can see it in our homes where family discipline appears to be at an all-time low and teen rebellion today is something that you can almost expect rather than avoid. And even in many professing Christian homes. Now, do you see what I'm saying to you? That the answer to these things is here in the book of First John, almost certainly. That what we are seeing as profession of Christian faith in many instances cannot possibly be the real thing. What we are seeing is cheap grace and easy believism where someone walks up the aisle of a church and makes a profession after a certain formula and is then told that he or she is a Christian. But such a person has often never repented, has never truly come to Christ. And so the Christian faith has no impact whatever on their lives. And you see, this is John's verdict as we look at these verses this evening. That if we do not keep God's commands as we have seen, we are liars and we make God a liar. We are not walking in light, in the light. We are in fact living lives that are careless of sin. And it is not a maybe, but it is inevitable that we are going to have serious and alarming problems. But now tonight, how do I know that I am not in that category that I have described? And the answer is that chief among the provisions and commands of God is the requirement to love the brethren. There is a sense in which this is central and vital. It sums up all the rest of God's commandments in a real way. And it is the sign and hallmark of a genuine Christian that there will be sacrificial and giving love for others and especially those in the body of Christ. The law of love. Now let me break this law of love down into two parts as John gives them to us. You notice in verse 7 that he says that the duty to love one another is an old command. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command but an old one which you have had since the beginning. Now what precisely does John mean by this being an old command? He is obviously bringing this out in the light of the background of Gnostic teaching. You remember the error that had crept into the church in John's day, those that claimed to have the true knowledge of God, something esoteric and out of this world, and the ordinary Christians had no access to this. 
And it's clear that John was claiming, I'm sorry, that they were claiming that John's teaching was novel and new. And so he reminds them here that what he is bringing to them is nothing novel or new. He is not breaking ranks in introducing the teaching that he is introducing in this letter, but indeed he is affirming something that has been there of old. But as you look at it, there are two possible interpretations of this command, which is an old command. Namely, that it goes back to the Old Testament itself, to the very foundation of God's revelation of himself. And if that is the correct interpretation, John is reminding his readers of such passages as Leviticus 19, verse 18. You remember that this was quoted in Jesus' teaching uh, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, who is my neighbor? The question was asked of him, and he told the parable of the Good Samaritan in answer and reminded his hearers of the command in Leviticus 19 to love your neighbor as yourself. And that is one possible interpretation. The other possible interpretation is that John indeed is referring back to the beginning of their Christian life, as he has often done in chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we heard and which we have seen with our eyes and so forth, referring to the coming of Jesus into the world. So he could be referring here to the beginning of their Christian lives, that he is not giving them something new and novel, but something that they had been taught from their very entrance into the Christian faith. Now, of the two interpretations, I'm not sure which one is correct, though I incline to the uh, first of those two, that he reminded them of their knowledge of the Old Testament teaching on the necessity of love. But you notice secondly about this law of love that it is a new command as well in verse 8. And its emphasis is surely new in terms of its depth and its impetus for their lives. Because you notice in verse 8, he says that this command to love is seen in Jesus. Its truth is seen in him, and then it is seen in you. Now, what does he mean? Well, it is new because there is a new depth and there is a new dimension in it since the coming of Jesus. There is, as though it were, a fresh glow a fresh force, a fresh meaning that has been put upon it because in the life of Jesus it is illustrated as nowhere else in the whole of Scripture. It becomes actualized in him and takes on a more profound meaning than it ever had before that. Now you see, We can think of the life of Jesus and we can think of the extent to which his love reached 
As you read the Gospels, there were none too low, there were none too desperate in their condition, but merited his mercy and his grace flowing out to them like a divine river of love and compassion. You can see it in the lengths to which the love of Jesus would go as you think of his dealings with those disciples that were so difficult and so obtuse as he had to reason with them, as he had to enlighten their minds when they could not understand what would seem to be the simplest of Jesus' parables. As you see him on the cross welcoming him, welcoming into paradise the very thief who suffered there in agony with him. The extent of Jesus' love, the lengths to which it would go, the degree to which it was realized as the most unlikely of men were drawn to him, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Peter the fisherman, who was so entrenched in his own self-righteousness, Matthew, the lover of money. The love of Jesus illustrated, livingly, actualized in his life and ministry. And you see, that's what makes it, beloved, a new command. We don't simply have the Old Testament word of God, adequate as that is. But we have that command to love one another, gilded with a new glory, surrounded by a fresh force, with the glow of God resting upon it at its very heart, because its truth is seen. In him. Now you see in summary what John is saying to us is this. That that same love that was in Christ is to be seen in measure in you. Now what a challenge that is. It is to be seen in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. I think it's helpful, you know, to think of this biographically. Have you ever thought of the person who wrote this book of First John? The man who was the bosom companion of the Lord Jesus, one of the closest of all his twelve disciples, but who in the Gospels is known as Boanerges, the son of thunder, along with his brother James. Do you remember the character of that man in the Gospels? In Matthew 20, from verse 20 onwards, where his mother came and pleaded with Jesus that James and John might sit at the right hand of Christ in the glory? Do you see him again in Mark chapter 3 verse 17 where Jesus called these two brothers as they came into the disciple band, the sons of thunder? Do you see him again in Mark 10 verses 35 through 45? Mark's account of their seeking the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in the glory. Do you see him in Luke 9, verses 51 to 56, where the Samaritan village refused to receive Jesus 
And it was John and James who came and said, should we call down fire from heaven just like Elijah did? And Jesus had to rebuke them. And do you think sometimes that it's this same man who is writing the book of First John? When did the change take place? Because this isn't the old John that is writing this letter, you know, any more than it was the old John who wrote the Gospel of John. Did the change come on Patmos when he was exiled? Did it come about as he reflected on the life of his master, the Lord Jesus, and began to pen the matchless record of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John? We don't know. But what we do know, beloved, is that here is a man aged, but sanctified and changed and being used of God in a most remarkable way. This love is seen in Jesus and, he says, in you. Beloved, as you sit here this evening and you find that you struggle with this problem of loving others of the brethren, you don't like the sharp corners in their character, you don't like this particular aspect of their demeanor, it's much easier for you to hate than to love. What this says to you, surely, is that it is never too late to change. If your heart is willing to serve the Lord Jesus at any age, you may be illumined by the truth of God unfolding itself in greater measure than you've seen it ever before. And your heart, inclined to hatred even as a Christian, can be renewed and made new within you. And you can be delighted with the freshness of the revelation of God's will for you. And this is the man that is writing the new command that is also the old command, the one who was once a son of thunder who never could have written this. But you see, the son of thunder had long since died because the true light is shining and the darkness is passing away. My friend, let me ask you this evening, do you bear this character as you profess the name of Christ? How very crucial the love of the brethren is to the church's life and mission. And what is this love of the brethren? but the setting aside of the spirit of self-seeking and rivalry that is the very antithesis to Christian love and that growing in the grace of God so that we can say the darkness is passing and the true light is continuing to shine at the very center of my life, the law of love. Now look with me as... I begin to draw to a close this evening at the second part of these verses in verses 9 through 11. You have the life of love there. Do read these verses as you have your Bible open in front of you. Now again, you see, there is a very searching test here. 
Do we claim to love God, and yet we hate our fellow Christians? Beloved, this is incompatible in one in whom the grace of God has come to be known and to rest. Do you remember how frequently John has already reminded us on six occasions, I believe, of the clash between what men profess on the one hand and how they conduct themselves on the other? In chapter 1, verse 6, and verse 8, and verse 10, and chapter 2, verse 4, if we profess to walk in the light or to do these things, and yet our conduct is not in accord with it, how does the love of God dwell in us? And you have it again in First John chapter 4, verse 20, the clash between profession and conduct being underlined the difference between truth and falsehood, light and darkness. Now in these verses, 9 through 11, the contrast between hate and love. Now let me say to you without any equivocation this evening that if you cherish hate in your heart against a brother or sister in Christ, you are in darkness still. And if that is the characteristic demeanor of your life or of mine, we can say without any equivocation or doubt, there has been no work of grace in such a life as that. And it reminds us, doesn't it, of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's statement in verse 2, If I have the gift of prophecy, he says, and if I can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge and even faith that moves mountains but do not have love, I am what? Nothing. Nothing. And this is a very searching test of the law of love being active in the life of love. Now, there are just two things that I want to mention to you. There is, first of all, you notice, love arising out of light in verse 10 there. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. Now, the distinctive hallmark, then, of Christian discipleship is love arising out of a life lived in the light of the knowledge of God. And what it says to me this evening is that we need to give ourselves seriously to one another in the body of Christ. Beloved, what John is inculcating here is not some human attitude or att attribute, but loving other brethren as Jesus has loved us. It means that we put away a forbidding detachment that is incompatible with being in Christ. It means that self-sacrificially we seek the well-being of others and put our own interests, as it were, behind us. 
And it's very interesting that in studying for this exposition this evening, I came across in an article I have in file these words, and I remind you they're not my words. They're the words of another writer, where he says this, that troublemakers in churches do not have brotherly love. Interesting, isn't it? He goes on to say there are important issues that we must stand for in God's cause, unapologetically and uncompromisingly, no matter how much trouble it may cause. But when you see people that are fault-finding, having critical spirits, mark that person and you can say, there goes a soul that does not have brotherly love. I never yet encountered a troublemaker in a church that did not seek to justify himself or herself. And such people always speak much about love, and they always say the other people in the church do not have love. The people that say that are always the people that destroy the love and destroy the warmth and destroy the harmony by their critical and fault-finding attitudes. My friends, spirituality has rather more to do with deeds than with words and feelings we learn here. This, he says, is an age of sensualism, and it has affected some people's thinking on spiritual matters. But spirituality is tested by this criteria. Is there practical, self-sacrificing, Love. And he goes on to say that some folks are not worried about what havoc they cause in the fellowship, provided they get their own way. Oh, my friends, there is something deeply and desperately wrong if we cannot live in respect and warm, outgoing love for one another. And thank God, in this congregation, I believe with all my heart, substantially, we do that and we endeavor to do it. There is no via media in this area. We may not like a person, but we are commanded to live in the life of love toward him or toward her. Now the second thing, and with this I finish, is the hate that is leading to greater darkness. Do you notice that in verse 11 as we finish this evening? You see, if I don't walk in love, I'm not standing still. It leads to the downward spiral that goes on and on and on until finally there is what the Apostle John calls utter and total blindness, the darkness has blinded him. Now do you see what he's saying? That the penalty for lovelessness, if it is continued in, is not simply that one does not see, but in the end one cannot see, even if one would. And hatred consumes the one who hates. You know, as a pastor I found a very interesting thing in my limited contact with those who are mentally ill. What often characterizes the mentally ill is the consuming hatred of another person 
And I challenge your thinking this evening. If you know some of the mentally ill, I do not say all of them. There are other causes of mental illness. But very often you find that there has been a consuming hatred of someone else because of some supposed injustice or ineptitude on a person's part until finally the hatred has led them to the position where they no longer know themselves where they are going in life. The darkness has blinded them. The hate that leads into darkness or the love that is lived out in the light. Beloved, this evening, which is it? to be. Is there someone tonight that I hate and I would with all my heart hurt and destroy even as a Christian? May God forgive me because we are to love our enemies, to seek their welfare, to pray for those that persecute to us and above all live in a growing, loving, holy relationship with those who are in the body of Christ. As a Christian, I must say by the grace of God, I will not submit to the forces of hatred that arise like foul effusions from my fallen nature. I will not allow it to infect. I will not allow it to fester and destroy me and others. But I will let the light of Christ shine brightly and more brightly still so that the darkness is passing and the true light is increasing. I will not allow barriers to come between me and that other person with whom I have a difference. And so, my dear friends, you will see the light in this congregation increasing and the light of the church increasing in this community, and therefore the light in the world increasing. A new commandment I give unto you, but you love one another. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how challenged we are by this passage in all its apparent simplicity. Yet it contains such Christian truth as would humble us and exhort us and indeed, yes, empower us to walk more and more into that light that is growing and leaving behind the darkness that is passing away. May this indeed be a true hallmark of our Christian profession. In the name of Christ, amen.